Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hello and welcome. This is episode 187 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you very, very much for being here, a part of this weekly conversation that I, Osher Ginsberg, am having with my guests. Uh, if you don't know me, if you're new to the show, hi, welcome. I'm a TV and radio guy from Australia, and uh, each week I try to have a conversation with someone who's really interesting, has found a way to do what they love, has found a way to do what they love for a living, I should say, and um, is uh, is in kind of, you know, someone will be inspiring to listen to. They make you go, you know what, I can do that too, because that's pretty much how I started this podcast. I was listening to other people's podcasts, and I thought, you know what, the only difference between those people and me is one day they went, you know, I'm just going to record this, and that's how I started. And here we are, 187 episodes later. This week, once again, is a compilation episode uh as if you've been listening uh, over the last few weeks, you've noticed some things, things have been going on in my life and there's some things going on in my life still. So uh, I've just got back from the airport again, uh, but this time I am actually in Sydney on the mic, And uh, but it is very late on a Sunday night. I'm getting this to my producer, Andy, 12 hours too late. So I'm sorry to make you stay up late, Andy, to uh, edit this together. So this episode is something that Andy's helped put together. In fact, when I say help, I mean completely put together. Andy Ma put this show together. This is some of Andy's favorite conversations over the last uh, year and a half or so from episodes that he and I have worked on together. Um, in particular, these are, I guess, fairly inspiring chunks of stories because, you know, we all need a little uplift at the moment. And so we're going to go through some of the stories this week, some of the the, the good bits of, of stories we've had over the past few years on this show about what it is to um, 
to create the thing that you'd love into reality and, and the times that people have done that and what it took for them to make that change that needed that thought of their inspiration to come into reality. Uh, a big thank you to everybody that is supporting the show at the moment. Um, thanks very much for making the time to get onto the Patreon page, patreon.com slash osher, O-S-H-E-R. Thanks very much uh, for all the people that pledged money through the week. You get access to an exclusive episode that I try and release once a month. And um, thanks for those people who reached out to me and tried to uh, get onto the podcast feed that I do send out. Um, if you need to email me for any reason at all, send Osher email at gmail.com is my email address. Um, thanks for all the fantastic photos this week from Andrew, from Jessica, from Hugh, um, from Tracy. Uh, thanks, everybody, for sending those photos through. They were all great to see. Just, you know, it's a photo of what you're doing when you're listening to this show. Just use the phone that you've got in your hand and uh, take a photo of it and... Um, and let me know what you're doing. Uh, you can either send it to me, send us your email at gmail.com, or you can uh, you know, hit me on Twitter or Snapchat or Facebook or wherever the internet finds us together at the same time. So let's kick this off. We've got uh, four stories today. Dr. Glenn Richards, Taylor Steele, Jane Liu, and we're going to start with Ben St. Lawrence. Ben, uh, who's a great bloke, he actually showed up to the story club the other night. Ben St. Lawrence is an Australian middle distance runner. He's a two-time Olympian. He's an all-round interesting guy. He's not the first Olympian on the show, hopefully not the last Olympian I've had on the show, but his story, particularly his triumph over adversity and the refocus of his life is definitely one worth hearing. He went from quite an unhealthy lifestyle to the Commonwealth Games, all right? And you'll hear him describe that. Our story picks up here with him telling us how unhealthy he'd let things get? Oh, like I was getting sick a lot. I was probably 20 kilos heavier than I am now. I was out drinking a lot. Um, yeah, treating my body like a garbage dump basically. And yeah. I think for a couple of years I'd gotten away with it because I was such a healthy, you know, active person uh -huh. as a youngster that I could sort of treat my body like shit and it would somehow bounce back and bounce back. But then eventually it stopped bouncing back. And then what was the moment that you went, that's it, I'm done? <sighs> I think there was a couple, like, there were just a couple of moments where I'd wake up not exactly sure what had happened the night before. I remember one that I, I tell people, I woke up and I was in this very small, very dark room and I could taste blood and there was something, I, I had gravel in my mouth and then I realised <clears throat> it wasn't a very small room, my head was inside an esky. And uh, I took it off and I just had this terrible feeling that last night hadn't gone so well. I looked around and I was in a house, I didn't even know where I was and it turned out... It, it, you know, I'd just been an absolute piece of shit the night before, getting in fights with my friends and I'd, yeah, been found asleep in this person's front yard and they'd taken me in and, yeah, obviously I'd gotten a little ill so they'd given me an esky and somehow it'd end up on my head overnight. But So that was one of them. But I think, yeah, I, for me it just, it was at the point where I, I think I looked in the mirror and just thought, who's this guy? You know, he's pretty fat, he looks unhealthy, he probably couldn't run to save his life, you know, not playing any sport out till all hours of the night, multiple nights of the week. I had a lot of good friends at the time, but also every now and then I'd look around and I'm just thinking, who are these people that I'm, I'm hanging out with? I've got nothing in common with them. And it turned out I probably did at the time, but I didn't feel like I did. So. Drinking. Drinking, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I remember I just, um, yeah, I just made a decision like, all right, I've got to get healthy. And so yeah. I started thinking about some of the things that I liked doing. It was swimming and riding a bike and, mm. you know, I think I started playing a bit of touch footy and, 
Fortunately, I had a job in a bar at the time, so that allowed me to still go out because I had massive FOMO. I was always, I wanted to be out. I didn't mm. want to be at home. I was always worried about missing out on things. So, yeah, it took me a while to, you know, I'd have a really good week and then massive blowout on the weekend and mm. then I'd, I'd feel really guilty about that and then I'd get going again. It might be two weeks of healthy living and then big blowout and I realised that I kind of needed to change where I was. So I, I left uh, Bathurst, moved to Sydney and that, that's when things sort of started getting mm. rolling. I was living more of a healthy lifestyle and I still couldn't quite break free of those weekend binge sessions. Um, so I ended up moving up to far north Queensland with a mate of mine who was up there and started selling pay TV door-to-door, um, commission only. So I was on my feet all day. In the Ostar van? Active. Yeah, yeah. Oh, in the yeah, van. Yeah. So wow. we, were, we were door knockers. Listeners probably hate door knockers, but um, it was an interesting existence. And I actually think that that helped me shed some some weight. I was on my all feet walking. walking all the time yeah. and live, we were living in um, Palm Cove up near Port Douglas. It was a beautiful spot to live. And yeah, that just helped me really break free of all of the, mm. the, the bad habits and the connections that I had in, in Sydney. And so, um, yeah. Sydney and Bathurst. And yes, yeah, so I was training, I still wouldn't say I was training like an athlete, but I was training like a healthy individual. And yeah. I remember on a couple of those runs, I'd, I would just feel amazing. Like I was thinking, geez, I must be running really fast here. I'm, I'm getting quite fit. And so, I started thinking about getting into some races again and with this selling Ozstar stuff, we ended up moving down to Victoria to run our own territory of it uh, down in the Gippsland, um, down near Traralgon, that sort of area and that was in 2006 while the Commonwealth Games were on down in Melbourne and so we decided to go in and watch a few of the events and uh, yeah, I remember watching Craig Mottram run the 5k down there, taking it to the Africans, running one of the greatest championship races of all time. He ended up with silver but... I still get goosebumps thinking about it. And I just, I just remember watching that and also seeing guys that I used to compete with in high school out there wearing the green and gold running for their country. And I'd kind of been through this whole up and down and around journey. And I was sitting there with a mate of mine who, not an athlete at all, but knew that I wanted, you know, had been one when I was young and he'd probably heard me every New Year's Day for 10 years saying, all right, this year I'm going to get back into my running. And I remember saying, all right, I think I'm going to try and make the next Commonwealth Games. And he kind of laughed at me and said, mate, if you make the next, because he'd heard it so many times, he said, mm. if you make the next Commonwealth Games, I'll come and watch you. And it was four years later, I made the team in Delhi, ran the 5K and the 10K, ended up coming seventh in both. And my mate, true to his word, was sitting in the stands over there watching. So, so good. So it was probably, yeah, there was a lot to get to that point, but it was watching those Commonwealth Games where I just said, okay, you've talked about it for long enough. I think I was mid-20s, you know, I couldn't really leave it much longer. And I didn't announce it to too many people. I told a few close friends that I was going to see how far I could get with this sport. And, um, yeah, ended up leaving Victoria, moved back to Sydney, um, joined up with a coach, started working in a running shoe store, just try, tried to surround myself with mm. the running culture. And, yeah, I, I, things sort of started snowballing from there and I started being able to have running as a social outlet as well, yeah. a big squad of people. We'd go out for breakfast afterwards, that sort of thing. And mm. I remember one one moment where I realised I'd definitely changed my lifestyle was, um, you know, I used to, during the clubbing days, I'd, I'd be one of those seedy guys hanging around, going to day clubs, so sort of stumbling out of nightclubs at five, six in the morning, looking for the next place to go. And and often that was in the Oxford Street sort of area, around that area. And uh, to drive to training when I was living over in Dremoyne, I would come up Oxford Street and I'd often see people, it was early in the morning, so I'd see people stumbling out of these clubs and I was, it wasn't that long ago that I was one of them and here I was, you know, bright and early heading to training and I just felt the greatest sense of accomplishment and I was like, okay, this is, this is more who I am and what I should be doing and the people yeah. I feel more comfortable around and it was, yeah, it was a good change and 
yeah, I guess things sort of progressed from there. Yeah. It's so interesting how you've basically described two separate scenes that you got into and then excelled at. <laughs> but yeah. in both the same way, you know, you got immersed in it, you surrounded yourself with the people that are in it and it's it's so easy to get sucked into it. I mean, as he, as someone who's been a young man, it certainly wasn't uh, Bathurst, but, you know, Brisbane in the in the 80s and 90s wasn't the thriving metropolis it is now. Yeah. But it's so easy as a young Australian man to just get sucked into that. Yeah. To get yeah. sucked into that. Well, it's, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Well, you want to have a beer? Why not? <laughs> Absolutely. And that's the thing with, with drinking and partying, it's instant gratification. So as a young guy, lots of hormones, you know, you... If you feel like doing something, you can go out that night and have a, a what what seems like a bloody good time. Mm. With running, it's more, you know, it's a long way down the track that you're going to get the, the the end result from what you want to do. So I think it probably might have been maybe needing to hit rock hit rock bottom and and you know grow up a little bit, have hormones change that I started to be able to put in the time and energy yeah. in in terms of. Um, yeah, Did just, you run into anybody in your new life from the old life? What happened to you? Did you get any of that? <laughs> yeah, so. Uh, every now and then, like, I'll, I'll get a message from someone, you know, particularly early early on when I probably just disappeared for a little bit and then someone might have been watching one of those City to Surfs that I was doing quite well at. I'd, I'd get a Facebook message going, that wasn't you, was it? Or I'd be running along and someone would scream out at me on the side of the course. And, yeah, so initially um, people were quite shocked. Yeah. 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 But... Um, and, and I've lost touch with some of the people that I was hanging out with back yeah. in those days, just totally different lifestyles don't match up. But plenty of other people have kept in touch and people have come along to watch me race where they can. And, yeah. you know, a lot of them have gone through, obviously it's not a, a lifestyle you can sustain mm. for long, so a lot of them have gone through really good changes as well. And yeah. so, yeah, I think, um, you know, maybe I've motivated a few people to, to change their lifestyle, whether it's running or whether it's following another passion. But, mm. um, you know, I guess I got into it quite late and so you know, just shows that it's, it's not too late. It's often not too late. Yeah. So, yeah, you can just um, make some changes and, and make them consistently and you can chase your dreams, I think. That was Ben St. Lawrence and uh, this is a Greatest Hits episode, the mixtape, uh, volume two, I guess, after last week's mixtape. Thanks very much uh, to Andy, my producer, who, helped me put, who put the show together. Um, the next story we're going to hear from is uh, Jane Liu. Jane is the founder and CEO of the mammoth Australian fashion startup, showpo.com, S-H-O-W-P-O.com. It's an online fashion retail business. It's humongous. And this is easily one of my favourites because everybody loves a story of triumph. Uh, Jane was working in a big accounting firm but absolutely hating it. And I asked her whether she remembers the day she decided she'd had enough of that life. I actually do very, very vividly. So I just, um, after two and a half years... Because um, I'm fascinated with people who quit. I've quit a bunch just of did stuff. It. Yeah, I've quit yeah. a bunch of stuff. Are I've you a good a... quitter? Are you like a dramatic, like, I'm out of here? That's no, how I, <laughs> I just realised that. The amount of energy I'm spending trying to keep myself sane yeah. in a particular space is more than I would be expending if I wasn't in that space. Yeah. And that's worth more to me than cash. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's great. And I just think so many people don't realize that. That's actually really good. It's, yeah. If you've got to work every day, so don't go nuts. Yeah. To just go do your job, you may want to think about it. 
exactly where you're yeah, working. So yeah. you, what, what, you, you, what, you did you catch a train into work? What do you remember? What you was going on that day? Were you sitting there on a train going, "This is it, I can't do it"? I was um, behind my laptop, and then I um, looked at my phone, and I was like, "Wow, it's been three hours." And I was like, "All that I'm literally three hours more dead." I'm actually three hours more dead than I was. And all I've done that time is I've removed the circular referencing from this spreadsheet. What's that? It's like when one cell talks to another, but it's it's, it's kind of like contradicts each other. And then one cell relies on another. It means the whole spreadsheet kind of has a breakdown and you fix it and it all flows. And who gives a shit, right? Yeah, exactly. I'm three hours more dead. Yeah. And I've just removed the and circular for what? referencing. Exactly. And so I was like, wow, I can't, I can't do this. I can't just like, I was like, I'm going to go get a, and I normally, I, all I look forward to is having a subway at lunch and then at night having a drink with friends. And it's just like, that's sad. I, I didn't want to do it. So I just quit. And I had a side business at the time, which is a really stupid side business, but I kind of used that as an excuse. I was like, yes, I'm going to quit that to follow my dreams. But what was the side business? We ran like pop-up stores, you know, fringe bar markets, it's kind of like um, we ran these pop-up stores inside the art house in, this, in Sydney mm-hmm. and then we actually had a place um, on in Campbell Parade um, in Bondi, this bar that we just converted into a market over the weekend mm-hmm. and then we stocked emerging design labels. But it's okay. like it's not, it's not a good idea. Like it's not scalable. It was like far from profitable as well. Um, but it kind of like – and it was such a stupid decision to act, to have quit my job for that. But now that was like – the biggest like life changer and it was really great that it happened my um so I quit my job we've been doing that business for six months with um business partners hang on a second don't when you start when you're don't you have to commit to a cadetship yeah i um i did have a cadetship with kpmg which i broke to work at ey they gave me this eighteen thousand dollar allowance which i broke and Ernst had to Young, pay back. which is the building next door to where i work at the radio station yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. oh yeah yeah um and yeah, so I quit that, and then so I paid back eighteen thousand dollars. And so meanwhile, my mom, my parents are on very low income. I'm there borrowing like ten thousand dollars for that first business, borrowing eighteen thousand dollars, not borrowing. They just gave it to me um, to pay back KPMG, which is like, and then I had to I had travel debts, and they just like pretty much gave me all of their disposable income, which I've just then my business partner decided she didn't want to do it anymore. Um, within the first month of me quitting my job, she's been secretly like job hunting. Oh. Um, so all of a sudden I was there. Um, and then, so I'm stressed out about the fact that how my parents can pay for their mortgage because I've wasted all of their money and now it's in the middle of the GFC. So I can't get another job. Um, then I walked out of, I left EY in such a, like a so long suckers the kind of way. Glory, yeah. yeah, so I couldn't go asking asking for that back. And so no job, no business, um, no money. And that's why the only other option was to start another business. Yeah. How did your parents take you quitting? I didn't tell them. <laughs> I couldn't tell them. <laughs> you you hang on, okay. Wait a second. So you somehow got them to Help you out of this financial situation because yeah. these people have committed you to committed to you for a cadetship, and there is a, a penalty if yeah. you leave the cadetship early. Mm. You somehow convinced your parents to help you out with that. Yeah, 
And then in the middle of that, you go, all right, I'm going to leave. I'm going to do this pop-up shop. It's going to be great. I'm going to be Subi 2.0. It's going to be brilliant. And then it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? How did, what, how did you, were you living with them? Yes. That made it so much worse. So I just pretended to go to work every day to EY, to Ernst & Young. So I would put on a suit. I would get up early and there's nothing worse than having to get up early than being unemployed and having to get up early anyway. Get up early, put on a suit. Bye, um, Mom. Bye, Dad. Yeah, and I have breakfast with them and talk about, you know. And then my mom sometimes tries to get the bus with me because we used to do that. So get the bus into the city with my mom. I'm carrying around an empty laptop bag. And then, like, just, like, kind of wander the streets, go back, go to the state library, try and go to, like, a cafe or something. And then even when I come home, I have to come home after them. So I had to, like, even if I was to go home during the day, I still have to step out and then come back. It was terrible. All right. So... How did you, how did you, did you know what you wanted to do? Um, I managed it within one, so I got a job as a receptionist at the laser hair removal clinic in the meantime. And it's just, it was so demeaning to have worked in, you know, a big four accounting firm in corporate finance, working on like multi-million dollar deals, which I didn't really understand or have any interest in, but still. There's great coffee. Then, yeah, everyone's dressed well. Friday night drinks. Yeah. Food, and then working at a laser hair removal clinic and the bitch of a woman used to make me vacuum and tell me, or point out all the spots I've missed. And then I remember the worst moment. I'm in a business suit, God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> a day. I don't have a tongue ring. <laughs> um, and then this woman, I was like working behind um, the reception as a receptionist, and this girl comes in. She's like, "Oh, Jane, um, we went to school together." And so, you know, if you go to selective school, everyone gets a proper job and blah blah blah. And she's like, "Oh, what are you doing here?" And I never lie. I should have just said, "I'm just. This is my part time job. I'm still studying or whatever." Like, or I'm just. No, still lying. But still, I I told her I'm just filling in for a friend. Which is the worst lie because five weeks later when she comes back for her appointment, I'm still there and had nothing to say. And her judgmental Asian mom was there and she must have like as soon as they left the front desk would have been like, don't turn up. Don't turn out like her. You know, like you I, you had that judgmental look. Is it like the Fijian Telegraph with Audrey's folks? Like did the judgmental Asian mom find a way to tell your mom? Or no, did, thank you, God. Wow. No, no, no. <laughs> wow. Thank so. God. So you did you did get some income, so you were yeah. able to you know eat. Yeah. Um, and but, then I. But what kept what kept you going? What like it sounds like you were on this just absolute foot to the floor V twelve. Just let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. This isn't yeah. for me. I'm jumping off, yeah. but I don't know where to. Yeah. That would have um, been very difficult to stay keep your head above water. Did you question what the hell you were doing? Oh, I was. Yeah, oh, I, I don't know how I got through it. It was the most depressing time of my yeah. life. And then funnily enough, I was introduced to another girl by this Asian guy that my parents tried to set me up with. From before? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we're not – like we have nothing in common. We just stayed in touch out of like courtesy, um, not in a romantic way at all. Anyway, he introduced me to this other girl who also wanted to start a business and so we did it. We started, we opened an online store. We, in three months, opened a bricks and mortar store on Broadway, which just like barely broke even. But still, like that gave me um, a place to go to during yeah. the day and um, hope. And that was Shopo, but Shopo only at the time. So what was the, what was the magic moment? I mean, you're, you're sitting, you're behind the counter of this laser hair removal clinic 
you're, you're helping young women, you know, to make sure their bikini lines are intact. Yeah. Uh, you know, zapping off mustaches. You're doing all this kind of. You know, it's yeah. A, it's a very important job. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, yet coming from Ernst and Young and KPMG and the, you know, that kind of. So that was the first place that's ever fired me because they said my heart wasn't in it. Well, they were right. Yeah. But I don't know how much heart you needed to have. You got fired from being a receptionist at a laser hair removal clinic. Yeah. So then I just worked full time on the business. Right. Um, for the first six months, I worked seven days a week in the store. So, and then so I was just working retail, which is so also hard. Like I don't have that much. I don't, I don't want this to sound like I have so much pride, but it was so demeaning to also have then work in this retail store. I've never worked retail before and have to. So I, I wasn't used to the fact that if someone comes in and you say hi yeah. and they're like, I'm just looking. It's like, okay, it's just like, can't not say hi to you. So yeah. what do you want? And then these, because we're opposite Sydney Uni, these girls come in and they're bargaining with you. They're like, can you take $10 off? I'm like, no. They're like, what if I buy two? I'm like two is like a good amount to buy. I'm not giving you a discount. And it was just like, oh, I hated it. <laughs> and then. But um, it was your shop. So. Yeah. And then, so it was good. Um, and then at some point I realized, um, so the. So the difficulty of starting the business was that I also didn't have any money. Yeah. Um, I think I was like $60,000 in debt. Like a lot of it um, was helped by my parents, which I did pay back. But um, I had my hex. I had no money. I used my credit card to fund the entire thing. But the way I got through that was because we bought the stock on consignment, which was so lucky, which meant that you pay for the stock only after it's sold. Yeah. So you, I borrowed the samples from the supplier, took the photos. Yeah. Um, just hustle to get everything, photography and models for free, build a website by myself by Googling HTML. Yeah. Um, so it looked shit at the time, but yeah. you know, it was, it, it was, it did all right. And then just use Facebook. And I used to get in trouble for spending all my time at KP, at EY on Facebook. Cause Facebook, um, EY was one of the only big companies that let you have Facebook. Uh -huh. And so I was just like, I would have fake spreadsheets open and I would be alt-tabbing just like as soon as someone walks by, I'm like, oh, spreadsheet. But I was on Facebook <laughs> most of the time. So I knew how the ins and outs work, of it worked yeah. so well and people used to make fun of me for being a Facebook addict because I was just spent on like, you just waste your time trolling on it, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it actually allowed me to have such a good understanding of it. And then I managed to kind of growth hack this big following on social media and yeah. people just thought that we were much bigger than we were. And yeah, it was, it was just, I had what, no money and we had a business. So okay. what was the, so you've bootstrapped the company on yeah. the back of a credit card. Yeah. You're flying by the seat of your pants on 18% interest on the credit card that's yeah, maxed yeah. out. What was the magic moment that you went, you know what, this might just work? Um, I actually bought out my business. So the business did kind of well and it started declining. At, with my business partner, the most we made a month is $22,000, but towards the end, it was like, it was December and it was. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. $5,000 a month. Like, December's meant to be your busiest trade, right? Because it's Christmas, party dresses. We did $5,000, which is like about two orders a day. So she wanted to get out. And she, um, so we did. We amicably went our own ways. I bought the business out for $20,000 cash. I just gave her a wad of cash. And then um, come January 3rd, 2012, the business is all mine. And then from that moment on, I just like hustled and I didn't do, it wasn't one thing in particular, but I just started doing everything. Just like decisions got made quicker. I did things my way. And um, so the next month we did $9,000 and then we did 41 and then 71. Jesus, in three months. 150. Yeah, we just kept doubling month on month. Holy moly. And at this point, I think we had an 80, for the $71,000 month, I was doing everything by myself, packing the orders, um, taking the photos, buying the stocks, just marketing, customer service. And I remember I was like, so every day, it's like it, you're just constantly writing out orders because um, I used to write thank you, personal handwritten thank you notes. And I get to the post box and the post box, I fill it up and it's full. So I have to speed to the next suburb to the, that post box, fill that up. That was full. And I was like, screw it. I'm going to wait for the postman. And I think that was the moment I was like, Shit, I'm onto something. This is gonna. This, this could actually work. You're this, waiting for the van, the pickup van, so you just want to put it all in there yeah. rather than shoving it down in the post box. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and so that was the big aha, first big aha moment. I think that was Jane Lou. You can find her online, uh, her Instagram and Twitter handles the the Lazy CEO. Uh, our next guest that we'll hear from today is Taylor Steele. Taylor is one of the most iconic and prolific surf filmmakers of our time through his film momentum which was released in 1992 a then 20 year old taylor captured a new and dominating style of surfing that hadn't really been seen before as he filmed the young surfers that he knew that would go on to become household names in the surf world shane dorian rob machado taylor knox and of course kelly slater so i asked taylor whether filmmaking was a passion since when he was in his teens videoing was what i got into um and i sort of stole our family camera and started videoing every time we'd go to the beach was it a vhs or was it high eight by then it, it wasn't high eight it was it was um it wasn't like a big vhs tape but it was uh a sort of a hybrid that they don't even have anymore yeah you know, like it was i think it went into a vhs tape it was like a Wow. Like a, 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 They've always been about use our format so you can't use it anywhere yeah, else, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. So we bought a video camera for Christmas and I just tuck it over and used it. And me and my friends would take turns filming each other. And and I got really into it. And basically, um, you know, I just was hooked. That was my thing. But before that, my dad was worried that I was going to do nothing with my life and that he would call me a poor specimen um, get off the couch, you poor specimen, and and you know he was he was worried. And then nowadays it's the other way. He's he's worried because I work too much because I love it so much. But now, okay, you want to shut your yeah? That's cool, man. Um, I was just thinking this like I only last week I got this phone and it's 
you know, it's absolute bananas. I can film 120 frame a second, 1080p slow-mo on my phone and then publish it for the world to see within a minute yeah. of itself. But you're, you're talking about lugging around, I don't know, 10 or 20 kilos worth of gear once you get the tripods and everything and the power supplies down to the beach uh, right. to take photos and take, take videos of your friends. Will you... At what point? Because there's a there's a big jump between just filming your friends and then oh, it'd be good if we edited out all the paddling parts. Like, were you editing from the camera down to a, the home machine? Yeah. What was the first edits you were doing? Yeah, and the first edits I, that happened pretty quick for for me. I was editing from the camera to a VHS tape pretty quick. And the way that I would do it, it, it was completely linear. You would edit every wave in order, and then you'd go back and place the song underneath it. And so sometimes the song would match and sometimes it wouldn't and it would surprise you when it does match and you sort of have to guess and, and map it out in your head. So, um, but I was editing right away and, and that was just part of the thing, maybe just being a 12-year-old and having time on my hands, I just just started doing it. But I guess when you're 12, you know, I kind of wonder now, uh, uh, do kids now have this disadvantage that they're so distracted all day long by this thing versus just plowing every minute of your day into be it a guitar or writing or taking a photograph or something. Yeah, you know, that um, it's interesting because, I, you know, video games and all those things were out then. I was just into making videos. And I think it's it's nice if you have something you're passionate about to just focus on that and, and just really dive into it um, compared to trying to learn everything and being sort of good at everything, but just really jumping into something that you are really into. What did you get out of filming your friends? Um, well, you know, like probably there was, um, you know, I was probably into watching myself too, you know, like in trying to make, um, you know, uh, you know, we take turns videoing each other. So like I got to watch myself surf, which is always um, disheartening at first and then you get used to it. And then, then it's sort of fun if you take out the bad bits and try to make yourself look as good as possible. Um, but I think like there's a lot of, uh, I was super shy. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, approval and, and sort of like praise that I would get back from it. And I fed off that. Would you invite people around for the uh, screenings? You know, as I got into high school, I would. <laughs> Come on over, Taylor's got this rad video of us all surfing last weekend. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and then I started trading out clips that I would give people for like new board shorts and like stickers and stuff. And I was starting to get stuff back from it too. Also, the economy began, the, yeah, uh, the yeah. Bali Bada. At an early age, like at 14 or so, I was, I'd be able to, if I got a good clip, I could trade it for, for something. A, cl a clip of a, a surfer. A, of another surfer, yeah. And you would then give them the tape. Yeah, then... I'd make a little, I'd put a couple waves of them down on a tape and then trade out for, you know, board shorts or Because I guess, you know, prior to, uh, prior to Instagram or prior to having a magazine photographer interested in you, footage was a rare commodity. It was rare. Not a lot of people had cameras back then. So, um, like, for example, Machado, um, he, he never saw himself surf. So I got some footage of him, and he, he was very, like, excited to see how he, how he looked surfing. And then uh, after he saw that, he w it was an ongoing thing of he constantly would be, you know, inviting me on trips and, like, so he could get more footage and 
and check it out. It yeah, was a because, tool. Yeah, but that's the thing. That's the thing that you then, you know, the way the economy at the time worked is that here's some footage of photographs of me, surf company. Why don't you put me in a pair of your board shorts and, you know, yeah. I can wear them on your trip. And just for folks who don't understand how surfers can, can make money, this is the, this is the currency yeah. uh, that, that surfers kind of trade in. So that I'm always fascinated with people who move in, 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 in circles. So you and Machado, like from that age, you were around each other? We, at like 12, we Far were like out. hanging out. Yeah, yeah. We surfed the same surf spot. And so, I, you know, he wasn't a part of our group that we'd rotate and video each other, but he was like a year younger and he was ripping. So we'd video all the local rippers too. And then, you know, it sort of evolved from that. And so at what point did you start to think, this is good, but I watch other surf films and geez, everyone seems to be bigger in the frame. Maybe they can zoom more. I need another lens. At what point did that start to get in on you? Yeah, pretty early. You know, like I, I think, um, yeah, I, there was, I was watching, um, there's an Australian filmmaker, um, Chris Bystrom back in the day, and he he had these, these films that were just like to, uh, you know, Untouchables and Huda Gurus and all these bands that were upbeat and had a tempo to them. So I, I would try to edit like he did and try to get those same sort of tracks that he used. And, you know, from that, I would just try to get my film style similar to his and, and whatever it took. You know, like um, California, where I was at, I was lucky it was all close to the beach. Right. So I didn't need those big lenses that are expensive. Yeah. Because uh, uh, you, you mentioned on an, an important point in, in many people's careers is the, the, the part where you, before you achieve your own style, where you're... Uh, mm-hmm. Not necessarily copying or imitating, but modeling yourself on someone else's style. Do you, do you feel that, that that's important? I, you know, like I definitely was doing it. Um, I think, uh, you know, there's several different ones that I was, you know, like influenced by strongly, if not copying, you know, like, it, but, um, you know, I didn't have the same tools they had. So if I was, tr- if I even could copy them exactly, um, it's, camera wise and motion wise or even the same surfers my equipment was so different that it would have looked pretty different as well but th- there is definitely my strong influences when did the uh when did the big what what came first the the upgrade of location or the upgrade of equipment um uh location came first yeah so you took the same camera that your family yeah. got for christmas and you went on the road pretty much <laughs> my camera was was really cheap and, and low quality. It was high eight. And so it was upgraded a little bit, but not, not really. And, uh, um, yeah, then just was, was traveling with the guys. And so at this point, you're now heading south of the border, but without your parents? Um, yeah, I went to Australia when I was 16 on my own. Wow. And uh, How'd you manage that? I just, I think my parents were like, wow, he's so shy. He doesn't really do anything. The fact that he wants to go and go for it, you know, we'll let him, we'll let him go. What, what spurned the trip? Why did you want to go? Um, just being a surfer, just seeing the surf, like every now and then we'd get a random surf magazine from Australia and the, the, the images of the Gold Coast and, and that sort of thing from the 80s was very, very different and very exciting and, and foreign and, and looked fun. And what were those first Australian waves like? Yeah, it was, um, we were there during July, which was our summer break in America. And surprisingly, there wasn't much swell the whole time we were there. It was pretty small. We surfed, uh, 
like head high snapper and snapper it was when kira was there so it was just a different setup then um but it was a it was it was nice it was so clear and i remember just the waves breaking different and there's a crispness crispness about it and yeah it was it was just overall just a life-changing trip you know like it it got the travel bug in me and it also you know really really made me fall in love with australia but you took the the camera with you on this journey obviously. yeah 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 and so when you got back and you were showing people this footage did people notice a difference they're like taylor you're onto something here um I, you know like i don't know i don't know it's hard to tell what people thought um i think my evolution as a filmmaker was really slow during those times you know like i don't think i was that good well, clearly something happened because only a few short years later you created one of the, the, the most seminal surf films of certainly my lifetime with the momentum. I think, uh, you know, looking back on it, it's, it's the good thing about that film is I embraced my weaknesses and, and the flaws became strengths and the, how simple of, of skills that I had became, you know, I guess maybe more profound because it was so minimalist. What happens when you turn in and, and lean into those flaws? Uh, what, what's that? What happens when you lean into those flaws when you go, okay, let's go? You know, like I, I, I borrowed money to make that film and it was sort of like one of these things like I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to um, really go for it and... I sort of felt like it was all or nothing. Like if that didn't work, then I was going to go back to college and, and sort of go find a normal job. Because at that time, surf films weren't really a career. You know, there was people didn't do that. There was a handful of people in the world that, that did that. You were working with people that have obviously you know, worked with photographers on the, before, photographers both on the land, photographers on the water. What was it that you were doing differently? Well, for one, I was shooting video and, and like most people were shooting photos and there was just i was i was the well he he shoots videos we'll bring him with us he's not a conflict he he's doing his own thing um so i think it was quite honestly like like nobody was really like beating down the door to shoot kelly and rob during that time and since i was around and i was excited to shoot with them they're like yeah you could hang out but but again this is Everybody else hears, you know, this is Rob. Like, That's my mate from school. Yeah. Rob from school. Yeah. So Rob really, like, introduced me to everybody. And his career escalating was the difference for me. If, if he didn't really make it and no one else in my hometown made it, it would have been really tough for me to, to make that step. Watching um, your new film, I, I, I did watch it on a, on a download link. But I, my monitor is this big, so yeah. I, I, did, I wasn't quite... Good. Not quite the big screen uh, that I'll, I'll see at the, at the premiere. Um, but watching Proximity uh, last night, I came out and uh, it's possibly the most peaceful surf film I've ever watched. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, uh, yeah. Um, well, when we went in to make it, um, we were just knowing, like, I'll, I'll just backtrack a little bit. Like when Momentum came out, seeing surfing was a rarity you know there was there was it wasn't on tv all the time there's no internet and so you, you know it was sort of a novelty to see it 
fast forward to now, it's everywhere. You're bombarded by it. And the progression level on the internet via the surf contest that you can watch have high stakes and crazy progression. You watch a webisode every day or, or at least once a week that's next level, incredible. And all these things are sort of approached for a, a short attention span. And, you know, like I just sort of really went through, you know, two things. What would be a different film for me to make? And what would be different for the viewers to, to, to experience? What is the, you know, purpose of a surf film nowadays? And so for me, um, you know, emotion is more of the difference. Um, emotion, having people feel something and, and challenge the way people, you know, digest surfing. That's Taylor Steele. You can find him online. Taylor Steele is uh, his handle on most things. And we're going to wrap up today's show by listening to the inspirational story of Dr. Glenn Richards. You'd know him as one of the mega entrepreneurs on the Network 10 show Shark Tank, which is uh, Dragon's Den in the UK. It's Shark Tank everywhere else. Dr. Glenn Richards is a vet and an entrepreneurial mega success. He grew the empire that is the Green Cross. He grew it from a single veterinary practice to a stock exchange listed company with clinics and pet stores all across Australia. I asked him how he began to form the business plan for what became Green Cross. As I travelled back from London, I wrote, wrote, wrote my business plan for Green Cross on the Trans-Siberian Express, and part of that was... As you do? As you do. It was seven days straight. It was white outside. There was a bunch of drunk Ukrainians to drink with, so I, I tried to divide my time between... Hang on, so you t from London to where? London to Beijing. So I went, landed in Moscow, got on the Trans-Siberian Express, and, and I'd done all this business reading before, you know, during my two years working as a companion animal vet in London, and, and I decided I'd write my business plan for a network of veterinary hospitals across Australia. And so I wrote the plan, what it was going to feel like, what it was going to look like, and a quarter of that was, was a, a high-quality standard of customer care and a high-quality standard of patient care, um, a network of hospitals with back-end corporate support for the local vet hospital, um, that was all in my business plan. Spasiba. Yeah. And then I'd have to go out and drink a few yeah. vodkas and then come back and get, work on. Except the, uh, the Ukrainian actually was pretty funny. Halfway through the trip, we were crossing over the border into China and uh, one of the Russians fell over between the between carriages and opened his head up. So he, he, at 2 o'clock in the morning, they came and got me up and I had a couple of Australian um, companions travelling with me. And uh, we had to go down to the, this carriage and the guy's got a cut across his forehead, just open from his eye to his hairline. Well, they bleed too. And blood everywhere, this huge axe wound across his head basically. And uh, so we had to hold him down while I stitched him up. So I had my little suture pack with me, but I had no local anaesthetic. So Vodka? Well, he was pretty inebriated anyway, so I didn't think he needed much. So he's... And they're all ex-army boys. So the ex-army boy of Ukraine's are sitting on him, holding him down. I've got the two Australian basically holding his head and as the train rocked, I'd throw a stitch in. So sort of one, two, stitch, one, two, stitch. <laughs> so we got to Beijing. He was so appreciative. He came and gave me a present and said, mate, you know, thank you in broken, broken English. Yeah. But this, you know, 22 stitches across his forehead. Wow. And, uh, but, you know, it did, it did create a good business plan about what I thought was needed in the Australian marketplace. That was a consistent quality of veterinary practice, a consistent service mentality around doing it better for the, for the, for the client, 
Um, and then what was really important was, you know, vets are very bad business people. What we needed was someone supporting the back end to make sure we could focus on the front end, which was clinical care and customer care. So created, yeah. and it took a long time to execute that business plan. Because I guess it's a little like pharmacy in, in that you have to go to university to be, you know, to be able to deliver it, but where you make your money is in the margins and you do have to kind of have some retail. I, I never knew what a margin was, I can tell you. Right. <laughs> you, know, you don't. You, get, you grow up as a clinician primarily yeah. and then at some point during your career you've got to learn business, to learn what a yeah. margin is and, and learn what a profit is. So you had a very clear, you're lucky. Not a lot of oh, people yeah. have that clear idea. And you already have a definition of what success looked like. I think so. I, I had a view that it was a network of veterinary hospitals supported by a central corporate team in a franchise type model. So when we when we eventually launched Green Cross with some friends out of Brisbane, I was still Townsville based, it was a franchise like model. So we, we actually owned our own practices and we created a co-op to provide back end services. And that co-op then grew to a, a corporate um, business model where we were still focused on providing corporate support to the local vet. So the local vet, the local vet team always had to be relevant to the local community they served. So we made sure it was is a franchise-like model, uh-huh. and that and it worked. You know, we and so people who are already existing vets would go, well, you know what, I'm probably going to do better if I'm with this team. But basically, in those days when we're starting out, we couldn't convince any vet practice in Australia to pay us a franchise fee. So we decided the sim- simple thing was we'd buy out the old guy who wanted to retire. And that created a better business model. So we went looking for all the old vets, looking for a succession plan. We then bought their practice and asked them to stay on. And after a year or two, they go, well, do you still want me here? And I go, absolutely, we still want you here. They enjoyed the experience because they were then focused back on being clinicians and not worrying about HR, industrial relations, um, how to market their practice, how to recruit, you know, worrying about the education of the team. That, yeah. we, did, we did all that for them. So the practices performed better, yet we owned them outright. Yeah. So I would have liked to have done the franchise model, but you know, the vets are, we, we call them, you know, the Bachelor of Veterinary Science, bloody versatile science degree. They know everything. And so to try and convince them to pay me a fee to help manage them and optimise their practice was just never going to fly. So, so the best alternative was to find all the old vets wanting to retire, <laughs> pay them a reasonably good fee for the goodwill they'd established over 20 or 30 years and then take over their practice and manage the practice. And that, that worked. So that's the basis of Green Cross. Fantastic. And at what point then did you go, you know what, I was, there's another gap here. I might... <laughs> Well, at the pet store one... Um, hey, Frank, what are you doing? What's he doing? Sorry, he's being annoying now. Hey, Frankie. What are you doing, Frank? Uh, oh, you should have got the two, there's three biscuits left. Oh, there, there you go. go. There you go, you can have Got me caught out. There you go. So, so the pet store... So the pet store was an interesting one. So what, did you see, what did you see that was missing there? Well, I'd seen the evolution of pets at home in, in the UK and, and I decided... Um, to open a, a new veterinary hospital in Townsville and beside the 300 square metre space was 1,000 square metres and I decided we needed a large format pet store and there was a little vet, a little pet store straight across the road who are clients of mine. So I wandered in to Tracy and Michael and said, hey, guys, see that building across the road? I'm, I'm about to put a pet store there and I don't want to frighten you or anything but I'd like you to do it with me rather than to compete. And they said, yeah, love to. So next thing, we've opened one of the largest format pet stores in Australia. Um, and at about the same time, I bumped into uh, I had a weekend in the Hunter Valley with a mate of mine, Paul, Paul Wilson. 
And I said, what are you doing with your life, mate? And he said, well, I'm between gigs, looking for something to do. And I said, well, have a think about pet stores. I'm about to open one in Townsville. From what I can see, the margins are damn good and there's a big gap here that, that you know, there's a lot of little funny pet store operators, but there's nothing that's coherent and, and, and really, you know, creates an exciting place for, for pet owners to come. Um, so next thing, we've opened our pet store, Paul's investigated the space and we've suddenly uh, bought out Pet Barn Sydney uh, and uh, those six pet stores were the basis for Pet Barn and, you know, we rolled out uh, pet stores right across Australia um, Paul was focused on the pet stores. I did my job in the veterinary side and 10 years later we decided to merge it all together uh, into one big consolidated uh, integrated pet care model. And uh, so the rest is history. We've ended up as a, it's an 800 million market cap company with 200 pet stores, 150 vet hospitals and um, quite simply I think adds serious value to pet owners across Australia. Boy. Look at you. <laughs> there you go. And uh, and then bumped into Steve Baxter and, and Steve said, hey, what about a gig on Shark Tank? And I said, I'm trying to have a year off. I've gone from the executive role with Green Cross Limited, the founder there. i just having a year off, mate. No, I'm not interested. And um, after a few bottles of red wine, he managed to convince my, my wife and me that I should put my name forward. And yeah. the next thing, they've, they've recruited me onto the Shark Tank. That was Dr. Glenn Richards. You can catch him every Tuesday night on Network 10 watching Shark Tank. And that's the end of this show. Hopefully we'll be returning to our normal programming by next week, but you never know what's going to happen because it's been pretty interesting the last couple of weeks and it might get more interesting yet. But thanks very much for listening. Thanks for being a part of the show. Thanks very much, Andy, for making this show today. Thanks, Hallie Van Sponia, my production coordinator that's made everything happen as well and helped me get from the airport to everywhere else all week long. You're a gem, Haley. you're a gem. All right. Thanks heaps uh, for listening. If you need me through the week, you know where to find me. Send us your email at gmail.com. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.